Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, это Prevail и ваш ведущий Грег Олег. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show from Vanity Fair, the investigative journalist who wrote what I think is the biggest holy shit article of 2020. Catherine Eban is here. We're going to talk to her in a minute about Jared Kushner and what I call the Blue State Genocide. She's the one that broke the story about the meetings that Jared had with his little secret group of people. It's an incredible story. We're going to talk to her about that. Kushner is somebody who, in my view, is, is one of the most important people in this whole mess. For the last four years prior to Biden taking office, I think Kushner, Jared Kushner, has basically served as acting president. I think he's content to be in the, in the shadows. I think he let his loudmouth father-in-law take all the attention away. And I think he had an enormous amount of power behind the scenes. He's a guy who's very dangerous, who is in tight with very dangerous people. He and his father, the family, the Kushner family, very tight with Bibi Netanyahu, going back, way back, to the point where when, as Zev Shalev broke on, on Narrative Live, when Netanyahu came to the United States to visit, stayed at the Kushner house and actually stayed in Jared's room. Jared was not in the room at the time, but Bibi displaced him. So you've got the whole Netanyahu faction, which probably ties back to Israeli intelligence. He's tight with MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. That's Saudi intelligence that he's connected to. The Saudis have a pretty intense intelligence service, especially online. Lots of bots working at the beck and call of MBS and we know now that that guy is uh, just a brutal murderer. President Biden authorized the release of the findings of our intelligence community on what happened with the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And basically, MBS ordered it. That's what the intelligence community thinks. That's what happened. So these are people that Kushner is in bed with. He's also 
in bed with David Pecker. We'll go into that in a second, too, at AMI, the guy that owns the National Enquirer. So he's got his tentacles everywhere, Kushner does, walking in the door. This is a dangerous guy. He's also somebody who thinks he's smarter than he is. This is a big theme in Trump land. Lots of people littering the landscape of people who think they're these great geniuses and are not great geniuses, although capable in some cases. I think Kushner was effective. That's what Catherine Eban told me. That was the word on the street with him. He's effective. Great. He still had to buy his way in Harvard, but whatever. I wrote in 2018 for Medium, before Prevail was even a thing, I wrote an article called Boy Plunder, The Many Crimes of Jared Kushner. And I want to read just highlights from that because I think it illustrates what we're dealing with here. This is a guy who thumbed his nose at the entire concept of rule of law. And he did it for four years. He did it before Trump even got into office. He continued to do it. The crimes escalated. And what wound up happening is catastrophic. Catastrophic. There are three people responsible for the more than half million dead Americans of COVID-19 in this country. Donald John Trump, Mike Pence, who was in charge, put in charge by Trump of the coronavirus response team, and Jared Kushner who ran all of the operations, the shadow response team behind the scenes. Those three men are responsible directly for hundreds of thousands of deaths. And that's not a hyperbole. Yes, the virus would have come here anyway. Yes, people would have died anyway. Their non-response, their sabotage, one might say, of the coronavirus response caused conservatively 400,000 more Americans to die than should have. The evil is sort of astounding. So I'm going to go through the many crimes of Jared Kushner. Then we're going to take a little break. And then we're going to come back with Catherine Eban. It was a really interesting interview. She broke these, these great stories and continues to break great stories in her work on the coronavirus stuff at Vanity Fair. We're going to have that for you in a minute. Here's the interesting thing about Kushner. He was involved with all of this for five years. He was always around, kind of in the background. But have you ever heard the guy talk? Has anybody this important to an administration been this quiet for this long? I mean, he gave interviews and stuff, but I don't think most people recognize what his voice sounds like. I don't think I would. So I'm going to play this clip of him denying all the crimes that he committed. (laughs) I think that's a good segue into the next section, Boy Plunder, The Many Crimes of Jared Kushner. Over the last two years that I've been here, I've been accused of all different types of things, and uh, all of those things have turned out to be false. Here are some of the many crimes of Jared Kushner. Number one, weaponizing data to contaminate the election. So Kushner joined the Trump campaign in November of 2015 and started heading the social media team. But it wasn't until June of 2016 that the social media campaign really began to take off. That's when Kushner assumed control of all data-driven efforts. This is per the, the, uh, the great profile of him that was written for Forbes magazine. One of the only big deep dives about Kushner that features an interview with him. He was in charge of all data-driven efforts. And the hub worked with Cambridge Analytica, 
which essentially weaponized data obtained from Facebook, were still struggling to understand what exactly Cambridge did with the data, how Facebook got the data, the micro-targeting, all of that kind of stuff. Forbes, in the article, they called this a stealth data machine, but it was obviously something much more sinister than that. We're still figuring out exactly what happened, but the more we learn about Facebook, the more sinister the whole enterprise looks. And Jared Kushner, he was the boy wonder, man. He made it all happen on social media. So anything that happened with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, Kushner's an intimate part of that. Number two, meeting illicitly with Russian officials and surrogates. It's against the law for American political campaigns to receive aid from foreign sources. It's against the law for private American citizens to negotiate policy for the U.S. if they are not representatives of the current administration. So arranging for campaign aid from a hostile foreign power in exchange for the promise of manipulation of U.S. policy would violate laws to the extreme. At an April 2016 VIP-only foreign policy speech attended by most of the inner circle, this is the, the Mayflower Hotel thing, Donald Trump promised a good deal for Russia. And Jared Kushner's the guy that, that set this whole thing up. He was introduced to these people through Henry Kissinger, through Dmitry Symes. Symes, who was you know, a Russian agent. Everybody knew that. Um, in fact, if you read Craig Unger's book and listen to Yuri Shvets, his, his uh, source, who worked for years at the KGB, confirms this. So Jared is working with a guy who everybody knows is a KGB agent to set up this meeting in which Trump meets the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, and promises a good deal for Russia. That's it. Kushner did this. In June, on June 9th of 2016, Don Jr. meets at Trump Tower with the Russian attorney Natalia Veselnitskaya, who had promised dirt on Hillary Clinton. And we've talked about this a lot. There was, was it about adoptions? Was it about Magnitsky? We're not really sure, but the people in the meeting on the U.S. side were Manafort and Kushner. He was there. He was on an email chain about the meeting. And the subject heading was something like dirt on Hillary. I mean, it's so ridiculous. There's no way he couldn't have known that he was meeting with Russians to get dirt on an opponent, which is, you know, again, against the law. He and Mike Flynn, you know, Mike Flynn, QAnon, crazy lunatic Mike Flynn, met with Kislyak at Trump Tower the first week of December 2016. At the meeting, Kushner proposed a Russian embassy back channel to avoid having to disclose communication between the camps going forward. Whatever went on, Kushner and Flynn went to great lengths to avoid discovery. I mean, even the Russians were like, you want to do what? It was just crazy. In mid-December, he meets with Sergei Gorkov, who was the chairman of VEB, the Russian state bank, that was placed on the U.S. sanctions list in 2014. Now, VEB claimed the meeting was conducted with Kushner in his role as the head of his family's real estate business, and the White House described it as a diplomatic meeting, whatever that means. Immediately after meeting with Kushner, right after that, Gorkov jumped on a plane, flew directly around the world to Japan to see Putin and report back. Again, this guy is on the sanctions list. It's not, it's not lawful for him to be meeting with him. He's not allowed to do business with entities on the sanctions list. At the time, of course, Kushner's company, the real estate family business, was in serious financial jeopardy. 
It needed like a billion dollar loan to secure its white elephant of a property at 666 Fifth Avenue. Of course it's 666 Fifth Avenue. Of course that's the thing. Now, VEB and the Washington Post said the meeting was taken by Kushner in his role as the head of the family's real estate business. That is also illegal. Meeting with the president of a sanctioned bank as a private citizen to negotiate a loan is illegal. Okay, number four, lying on his SF-86 security clearance form. He didn't do this once. He didn't do it twice. He did it three times. He didn't cite the meeting with Gorkov. He missed these things. If you lie once on the SF-86, five years in prison, he did it three times. He kept lying about it. It's sort of crazy. And everyone just sort of gave him a do-over, like a mulligan, like, oh, you must have you must have forgotten about the time that you met with the head of the Russian bank that's on the sanctions list. Just fill this out again. And, you know, this is a guy who's very given to secrecy. We know a lot about what meetings he had. He might have had other meetings that we don't know about. Okay, colluding with the tabloids to attack Trump critics. Michael Cohen used to be Trump's contact with AMI, the National Enquirer, the tabloid publications, when they would do like hit pieces on Hillary or whoever, Michael Cohen was sort of the the point man in the operation. But after Trump took the White House, Kushner assumed the role. So this is from the Daily Beast, which says, shortly after the Trump presidency began, Kushner and Pecker talked repeatedly on subjects ranging from relations with the Saudi regime to possible dirt that the Inquirer had on Morning Joe's Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough, according to the four sources who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss sensitive matters. AMI, like Kushner, cozied up to the despotic Saudi government, which included the production of a glossy propaganda magazine boosting Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Saden. End quote. That's the Daily Beast report. Now, the tactics of acquiring unseemly compromise on rivals is well known to Kushner, as this was ultimately one of the reasons his father, Charles Kushner, was sent to prison. You guys know what Charles Kushner did, right? He hired a prostitute to honeypot his brother-in-law, taped it, and then sent it to his sister to try to get them to shut... It's a, it, this is a terrible family. Okay, another crime. Lobbying for the Qatari blockade. In his role as White House advisor, Kushner allegedly pushed for the blockade of Qatar, who was a key ally in the, in the Middle East. In, in the, remember, in the Gulf War, all of our military operations were headquartered there. There's nothing wrong with doing this, but Kushner appears to have lobbied for the blockade only after the Qatari government refused to provide his family business with a loan it needed. Now, if there's truth to that, if he's in there enacting foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy, as vendetta because a foreign government wouldn't give him money for a loan for his business, that's about as illegal as it gets. Number seven, providing the Saudi crown prince with classified intelligence. Now, we know these guys are BFFs. They're millennials. They're princely. They're evil, both, right? Kushner allegedly provided MBS with classified information related to the members of the royal family who opposed him. And right after he left, there was a purge of the disloyal in the kingdom. And what what it certainly looks like and what's been reported is that Kushner went there and maybe at 2 o'clock in the morning sort of said, yeah, that guy's bad. Nah, that guy's all right. And then MBS acted on that, on that intelligence. Number eight, 
failure to warn Jamal Khashoggi of the plot against him. Now, the CIA knew there was a plan in place to abduct Jamal Khashoggi. It seems likely this intelligence was relayed to Kushner, given his close and chummy relationship with MBS and the kingdom. If so, Kushner had a duty to warn Khashoggi, who at the time of the assassination was a U.S. resident working for the Washington Post. Illegal. Number nine, using personal email to conduct government business. But I guess none of the none of the Trump people would have any idea about using personal email to conduct government business. They would never make a big deal about that, right? These nine alleged crimes are easily connected to Kushner and range in punishment from stiff fines to prison time to execution. And now, worst of all, we let this fester. We didn't go after the guy. We didn't get him for the lying on his SF-86 form, which would have been the easiest thing. And what happens? The crimes just escalate and escalate and escalate because he's like, fuck it. Nobody's stopping me from doing whatever I want. I'm just going to keep doing it. With a guy like this, you have to stop him. You have to indict him and put him in prison or he's going to keep doing crimes, which is what happened. And now half a million Americans are dead. We'll be right back with Catherine Eban from Vanity Fair. Prevail is brought to you by Glow Stick Army, the new album from Halo. All those I'm here with Catherine Eban, reporter from Vanity Fair, who I got to tell you, I the stories that you wrote in the summer about Jared Kushner and Trump and the, the COVID response, or rather the COVID non-response, in my view, the most important stories of the year. And I've been trying to, to push and get people to read them and be more aware of what's happening uh, or what had happened or what hadn't happened with that administration and the COVID response for a long time. So I just want to ask you about that. How did you get in there? How did you start writing this? What was the process? What did you think when you were doing it? Well, you know, there had initially been reporting that uh, Jared Kushner had set up this shadow task force within the White House to respond to COVID. So this was different than the official uh, White House COVID task force. And it was very murky. It was really a black box. Nobody knew who the quote unquote members of his shadow task force were. Uh, nobody seemed clear exactly on what the members of that task force were doing. There was, you know, reporting emerging that there was a strange sort of VIP favoritism in who was getting PPE. So you'll probably remember the VIP spreadsheet that wound up uh, with a group of 
volunteers who were trying to source PPE. So there was this sort of atavistic Lord of the Flies kind of trickle of information coupled with this black box into this. Um, And then I got a piece of information that really piqued my interest, which is I got an invoice. The invoice was an order for 1 million diagnostic test kits from a United Arab Emirates company called Mm -hmm. Cogna Technology Solutions. And the cost for these test kits, and this was the, the date of it, I mean, it was early on. It was at the point when Trump was telling everybody, if anybody who wants a test can get a test, and that was totally untrue. Um, But what was so interesting about the invoice was the client name on the invoice, which was simply WH, White House. Mm. Yeah. So it seemed to me that this shadow task force that Kushner was operating was actually contracting uh, behind the scenes for supplies at a time when Trump was claiming there are lots of supplies. Uh, and that's really where I began to put my shovel in and start digging. So this the, the, the time frame when the shadow task force formed was what, March? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We're talking March. Okay, so March of 2020, the task force. And at that time, there was all this shuffling, if I remember correctly, in who was who in the White House, in the Trump administration, was going to be handling the coronavirus response. Because first it was Azar, whose job was you know, health and human services, that should have been his job. But then there was that weird press conference where Trump was like, we're going to have Mike Pence do it. And Pence looked surprised, like he came out of his stupor for 15 seconds. and was like, what? Okay. And, and then everything sort of was weirded out. And I think it was around that time that I call him acting president, Jared Kushner, had his super secret task force. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you found about, about the task force? Who was in it and so, stuff like that? So... The the first thing that once I started digging, I uncovered that, in fact, Kushner had gathered together a group of billionaires and bankers to try to, quote unquote, solve the various pandemic problems. So the shortage of PPE, protective equipment, the lack of ventilators and the need for testing. So instead of handing it off to, you know, public health experts who have been responding to, you know, pandemics and outbreaks for forever, he figured we'll do an end run around all these so-called experts and bring in the real experts. Uh, And there was a quote in a Politico article in March that this was the A-team of people who get shit done. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it may be true. It's just not the kind of shit that needed to get done. (laughs) Or maybe shit is the operative word. I don't know. (laughs) Um, So then then I found out, amazingly, that they had gathered together these billionaires and bankers and experts from the diagnostic testing industry. And they had actually cobbled together a federalized plan to ramp up the nation's COVID-19 testing. And the plan actually reflected a real need and was in fact the kind of plan 
that every other country who's done a successful response to this pandemic has implemented, like South Korea uh, and even Vietnam and Germany, you know, which was to have, you can't, you can't have, it's like somebody described it to me as the 20th century where, you know, every, every county is on a separate power grid and you can't surge power from one to another, right? We needed a 21st century federalized response to testing shortages. So they cobbled together a credible plan and I obtained a copy of the plan. Sounds great, right? I, I think and that that to me, that was the most mind blowing thing. It's like these people actually did the A team of getting shit done actually did kind of get shit done. So. Well, they but they didn't. So the what happened was that this this testing plan uh, ran into this shifting sentiment at the White House, which was, oh, looks like the pandemic is kind of on its way out. So this is like April, right? Ugh kind of on its way out, and it's mostly affecting blue states. So actually, we, instead of going through all of the effort to create this complicated federal response, we have a political solution, which is when all these folks in blue states are dying, we can just blame the governors of those blue states, and we don't have to go through all the bother of creating this federal plan. So as one of the... um, people who was involved in creating this plan explained to me, it just went poof into thin air. It's crazy to me. I, I, when I, after I read your article, I wrote a thing from my Substack called um, blue state genocide, which is a little bit sensationalistic, but not by much. Cause we're, we're at, we're at half a million dead now. And one of the things that there's so much that blows my mind about all of this, but one of it is that Jared Kushner advocated for this political plan of of basically you know blaming the the governors but it's it's new jersey which is where he's from and where he grew up it's new york which is where he lived until coming to washington for the white house and it's california which is where his brother lives this is his friends his family his neighbors everybody in his life are in those three states so that's the level of i think evil is really the only word to use to describe it you know well so, you know, when, when I reported, when that testing story broke and it really went viral and people were so outraged by, by the idea that you would just have a political calculation based on an idea, mind you, that a pandemic that began in Wuhan, China, was somehow only going to stay in New York and New Jersey right. and not cross some borders, state borders. Anyway, okay. Um, uh, but, uh, so then I began to hear some, some stuff about other interventions he had made. And that led me to my next story. That's their problem. And, uh, yeah. So this was the story of a group of uh, major entrepreneurs, you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, big business people who early on in the pandemic wanted to help the federal government. So what they did was, you know, this was at a point where ICU nurses were photographed wearing garbage bags because they didn't have protect, you know, proper protective equipment because of the shortages. So they canvassed major corporations in the private sector as to 
you know, what did they need? What could they produce? What were the, you know, were there hidden reserves? What was the capacity? Uh, and they brought all of this research to the federal government. So they had a FEMA meeting and basically these, these entrepreneurs had concluded in, you know, discussion with major corporations like General Motors, Ford, Google. And what was needed was for the federal government to deploy uh, the Defense Production Act, which right. is this Korean War era law, which basically unleashes the procurement powers of the federal government. And they had they had come and, and proposed this. And the folks at FEMA who were trying to get Trump to use the Defense Production Act said, please come to the White House tomorrow and meet with Jared Kushner and try to convince him of this. So they did. So then what I was able to piece together was this incredible meeting in the Situation Room at the White House with Kushner sitting at the head of the table in a oh, chair yeah. taller than any others. And as one of the participants said to me, it was like he was the president. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And they presented this, you know, picture of their findings and advocated for the Defense Production Act. And Kushner told them in no uncertain terms, the federal government is not going to lead this response. You guys don't know anything about government because, of course, he was the expert. Uh, and that, you know, the states were going to run this. And then one of the participants pointed out, well, you know, Cuomo was on CNN saying we're in desperate need of supplies and ventilators. And the problem was, if you leave it to the states, the states are all then in the position of bidding against one another right. with a very limited marketplace. I mean, you could say you believe in free markets, but the problem is this wasn't a free market. This was every country in the world fighting for limited supplies and without the buying power of the federal government, you know, the states were just were just bid, outbidding each other. Yeah. Um, so Kushner's response to that was, you know, CNN, that's CNN bullshit. They lie. And um, Cuomo didn't pound the phones hard enough to get PPE for his people. They're going to suffer, and that's their problem. Yeah. Um, so the people who were in that meeting were just blown away. They just were stunned. Uh, one of them told me, you know, that's the moment when I realized we're screwed. Subsequently, much to my amazement, uh, the Lincoln Project took yeah, yeah. that quote, they're going to suffer and that's their problem, and put it up on a billboard in Times Square. That was great. <laughs> I mean, you know, doesn't happen a lot in journalism, but okay, there we are. It's interesting. Kushner, I mean, he's such an infuriating person. I he, He's definitely the person I hate the most of all of the Trump people, because I I don't know if it's because he's he grew up in a town like 20 minutes from the town where I grew up. And I'm like, what what, what happened to you, man? Or or that he's young and or that he bought his way into Harvard or what. But he thinks he's so smart and he's just clearly not like the idea that the federal government should not intervene and manage a crisis like this. 
you know, that that's old school thinking that that's like Grover Cleveland stuff. That's that was what Hoover thought during the early days of the Great Depression. And in a related story, Hoover didn't do so well. You know, his presidency kind of tanked I and mean, FDR came in and said, no, no, of course, it's the federal government's role to, to help here. And we're going to and we're going to do it. So and I don't think anybody has argued since then that that the, that the federal government shouldn't come in and intervene um, in times of crisis. So the fact that he's He's being snotty about it and, and arrogant is just ridiculous. It's, it's well, dumb. you know, I think we what's so striking to me about it is this abs- absolute belief in his own abilities. Yes. This presumption of expertise in a situation so complicated, you know, and, and what is very clear looking around the world. The people who have had the countries that have had an effective response have let the scientists lead the response. Right. They put them in charge. They nobody turned to billionaires to say, hey, what do you think about this? Because how would they know? Yeah. I mean, you know, to be fair, there is no more opioid crisis and there's peace in the Middle East because Kushner was in charge of those things as part of his portfolio. So maybe we're being, uh, you know, a little bit harsh. No, that, that's another thing that's infuriating about Kushner, but about the, the response in general. Like, I remember when Pence took over, I thought maybe this will wind up being a good thing because Pence has just every incentive to do well with this. Because if he hit, if he hits a home run here and saves everybody, that's just going to be good for him politically. And it's not rocket science. Some of the stuff, just give the car keys to Fauci and do what he says. Have a press conference every day. That's what Cuomo was doing in, in, at that time before, before everybody turned on Cuomo now. But Cuomo's management of the response in March and April was really great. And mm-hmm. I live in upstate New York, and, and his decision to close uh, the state universities as early as he did definitely prevented lots of people right. getting sick up here. So. Right that had a positive impact on my life. So I, it's just, it's so frustrating that they, they couldn't see the, you know, the, the long-term gain. They just only saw the short-term benefit. You know, I, in reporting on this pandemic now for a year, yeah, what is clear to me is that there was just the embrace of an ideology um, that, that government was too lumbering and bureaucratic and that the private sector with its, you know, lean, nimble, uh, fleet-footed abilities could just handle this regardless of the reality on the ground. So uh, anybody who wanted to do something to solve this problem was always coming up against this ideology. And any quote-unquote solutions they implemented had to comport within the confines of that ideology. Ideology is never a good thing when you're governing something. Ideologues are fine as scolds in Congress or something mm-hmm. like that. But once you put an ideologue in a, in a position of executive power, it's, it's usually a nightmare. I mean, if you look at Pence, when he was governor of Indiana... The HIV outbreak occurred on his watch, and it mostly occurred because his ideology, he was so anti-choice that he wanted to defund Planned Parenthood 
believing wrongly that all they did was run around giving everyone abortions, whether they wanted it or not, not understanding what Planned Parenthood actually does and the function it serves. So there was no place in these rural parts of Indiana for people to get tested for HIV or to get needles and this and that. Right. There was a huge issue with needles. And in in fact, it was, um, I think, Jerome Adams, who became the Surgeon General, who was running around all of these Indiana counties saying we have to do needle exchange. Yeah. Yeah. But it was the ideology and w- w- divorced from reality that got them into trouble. Right. And I hoped that, you know, he learned from that mistake in Indiana and would do better this time. But no, no. Right. Well, as we've seen, you know, COVID-19 is spectacularly indifferent to um, the, you know, the, the free market ideology. It really doesn't <laughs> care. And in fact, it, it is, uh, you know, if if you wanted to design a pandemic response that would benefit SARS-CoV-2. I think we did it. Yeah. What now you've been reporting on this since the since the Kushner time. And I just was looking at your page on uh the, the Vanity Fair and it's just one it's one clusterfuck with these Trump people after another. It's it's they go from you know screwing up thing A to screwing up thing B to not communicating the information not liaising with the Biden people coming in to the point where it almost seems like it's intentional sabotage. I mean, that's what it looks like to me. Do you what, what sense do you get? I mean, do you think that this was on purpose or this was ineptitude or greed or what do you think is driving these people? Well, you know, they're absolutely certainly in the transition. There was active sabotage. There's no question of that. You know, they absolutely slow walked the uh, the transition. And, uh, you know, and as I reported recently, Biden's team came in, finally opened up the uh, file cabinets and was like, holy shit, there's no vaccine distribution plan. But, you know, once I did a deep dive into what happened with the vaccine distribution plan, again, that was an ideology that it was somehow authoritarian and, you know, communist of of the federal government to tell the states what to do. The states were well positioned to figure out the needs on the ground. And we're just like our job for Operation Warp Speed, our mission is to drive the trucks across the state borders and drop off the vaccines at these various hubs and say, see ya. But, you know, as one public health expert put it, that's like sending crates of Ikea furniture you know, dropping them off. And then all the states are like, holy shit, you know, we have to, (laughs) we have to assemble it ourselves, uh, which is exactly what happened. So, you know, you had millions of people refreshing, refreshing, refreshing the, you know, vaccine, where can I get my mom a vaccine? I did the same thing in New York state. I mean, I was literally like five times a day on the New York city and New York state, you know, vaccine you know, get your shot pages for weeks, unable to get my mom a vaccine. Yeah, there's no, it, it didn't seem very well, uh, too many cooks, you know, too too many people trying to figure it out in too many different ways. It's interesting that Trump and his people, they're fine with the federal government taking voting rights away from the states and saying that the electors of the states can't vote the way they want. Like, that's okay. I mean, the hypocrisy is just, it's not a surprise, but it's really appalling. 
And I joke about, I, I just keep coming back to this Kushner business. I just can't wrap my mind around how someone can be that venal, that evil, and that short-sighted and awful. It's, it's just, it's just mind, mind-boggling. It really is. You know, it's, it's strange. I mean, in an administration really marked by absolute incompetence, I have interviewed people, and I will just say it, who were like, you know, Kushner was effective. Um, so effective at certain things, right? Like for the Operation Warp Speed people, he was able to get them in front of President Trump once a month so they could brief him. But that doesn't mean that you put this guy in charge of absolutely everything, you know. So it is really uh, just kind of insanity that that he held the lives of millions of Americans in his hands. And I mean, yeah, maybe he's effective, but I I could probably arrange meetings with my father-in-law and some people, too. Like, I don't think that's... It's not terribly impressive to me. Like, hey, you know, it's not like he's doing anything. He's just tweeting and golfing. Like, you know, right. just make yourself available. It'll look good or whatever. Right. I, 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 I don't know. I, it just, it really blows my mind. You didn't talk to him, though, did you at all? Kush, I Kush never got like, to, I never, yeah. you know, I, I requested it. I never got to interview uh, Kushner himself, no. He's pretty hostile to the press, I think. I don't think he likes people digging around. He seems like he's he's comfortable in the shadows, you know? Well, you know, what was interesting to me, that detail from one of my articles where he told this group of entrepreneurs, oh, that's the CNN bullshit. They lie. So he actually believed that, you know, we're all fake news. I'm of two minds about it, because if he... If he said that and he didn't believe it, it means he's sort of he's he's perpetuating the the disinformation disinformation campaign. But if he said it and he believed it, that means he's a moron. I don't know which one of the two to believe. They're they're both equally believable. You know, this is a, so. This is a strange thing. I mean, Kushner and Ivanka were Democrats. Yeah, they were New York City Democrats. Uh, and, you know, now they have kind of rebranded themselves to be like prince and princess of this MAGA empire. Um, and, you know, I think it remains to be seen whether this MAGA fervor will persist. It's interesting with Kushner because there was definitely a moment, and I'm not sure exactly when it was, when he basically went full MAGA and couldn't turn back. He took over the social media arm of the campaign, and I think it was either November or December of 2015. Mm -hmm. And he was humming along, kind of doing his thing for a while. But once he got tuned in or or turned on to the Russia people um, and the Cambridge Analytica people, that was around May and June. Mm -hmm. And... First of all, the media, the social media operation he was in charge of went through the roof and started being much more effective, mm-hmm. which it probably is when you have all that data um, mm-hmm. and all that dirty money coming in. And also, I think by then he couldn't get himself out. Like he was at the, you know, the, the Don Jr. Trump Tower meeting with Manafort and the Russian, you know, Natalia Veselinskaya. He was there. He got up and left because I think he, he knew that it was bad for him to be there. But he, he was there. He didn't report it. Well, you give him you give him a lot of you give him a lot of credit there uh, for the reason that he may have stood up and left. But, you know, look, it's clear that, you know, what I think has been a 
a big surprise of the last four years in American life is how many people are willing to check all principles at the door for proximity to power. Yeah, that's that's true. And we've seen it. People just humiliating themselves, ruining their whole their whole brands and their lives. Look at the my pillow guy. I never heard of the my pillow guy. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant. It, so I've done I've done a bunch of reporting on the um, the oleandrin substance that Mike Lindell was touting, <laughs> right? Which you know we maybe made a narrow escape from all getting, uh, you know, dosed with some sort of poisonous shrub extract. Right. Again, a guy that's rich in one area, thinking he knows things about all areas that he has no business uh, talking about or, or, or commenting on. What I'm, what I have been advocating for as I go on various uh, podcasts and broadcasts that I do is a, a COVID-19 commission where whether it's Congress or a special prosecutor or somebody, probably Congress, goes back and really digs into what happened, what failed, why it failed, what mistakes we made, and how uh, we can prevent these mistakes from happening next time. I think your reporting is going to be so critical to that commission if and when it happens. But I also think we're going to find out a lot of things about Oh, yeah. I mean, the money stuff, too. Like, he'd come out and tout some weird, you know, drug that nobody really knew about. That obviously has some impact on the stock price. And then, you know, a couple of days later, everyone calms down. What's going on with the vaccines, with the ventilators, missing vaccine doses? There's lots of stuff, I think, that are these stray, not to get conspiratorial, because I, I think a lot of this was ineptitude more than anything else. But I'm curious to see what's going to come out of this in terms of, you know, were, were there um, ulterior motives to them slowing this down? Was he blaming small government? Right, right. I mean, well, you know, in investigative journalism, we have a saying, never assume conspiracy when incompetence is an option. Yep, yep. Um, so I think it is it is an open question. I think we do need a, you know, 9-11 style commission to Absolutely. look at how it is that we wound up with half a million people dead and counting. You know, there are there are countries have had, that, you know, are have had minimal deaths. It was yeah. not. This is not inevitable that this had to happen. No, it, it was a it was a calculated thing. And the other irony of it is, I think if if this had not happened, if there had been no COVID, or if Trump and Pence and Kushner had been able to contain it, he would have mm -hmm. won in November. He absolutely would have won. I think COVID more than anything else is what torpedoed his his uh, campaign. I, I agree. I agree. I think I think without the disastrous COVID response, he could have been reelected. It's very, very hard not to be reelected if you're the U.S. president. It doesn't happen yeah. very much. You have to right. almost have something really terrible happen to, right. you know, to throw you out, whether it's economic disaster or you right. know, right. Ross Perot running for some reason. Yeah. You know, so, something. Um, yeah. So. What are your you're, you're definitely more on the on the front lines of this than I am. But what crystal ball wise, where do you see this going in the next you know couple months? Um, I because my kids ask me, 
early on, I, I in March, I was on Twitter, and it, when the NBA announced they were suspending the season, it was Wednesday the 11th. And I immediately, it was 1030 at night, and I got in my car, and I went to the supermarket, and I bought cleaning supplies. I just bought a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. And I came in, and my kids were making fun of me, and I'm like, you make fun of me now. And they were like, oh, we're not having school for two weeks. And I said, I, you're lucky if you go back to school in the fall. I'm like, we're not going to. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? My wife was mad at me. And I'm like, I'm sorry. It's just it's just not happening. Nobody's going to school. And But now I feel pretty optimistic. I think I'm more optimistic than everybody. I think that we have not had a functional federal government in four years. Yeah. And Biden is clearly, you know, Klain ran the Ebola risk, but we have people yeah. in, in place that know what they're yeah. doing. So, um Anyway, this is a long-winded question. So what, what what do you think? Well, you know, first of all, I think one huge question is the variants. Yeah. And we just don't know what kind of impact they will have. And we're it's still unclear how protective the vaccines are against these variants and how long it's going to take to get to, you know, the vaunted herd immunity. So you know, honestly, I don't feel, and and maybe it's just my jaundiced view of covering this train wreck for a year, but <laughs> I don't feel 100% optimistic that we're getting back to anything like normal, uh, you know, in the next year. I mean, it's, I th- will it be better? It couldn't be worse. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not, you know, as you say, we have competent governance now, but I, I think we're we're looking at a long tail here for this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's wishful thinking, but I don't know. It seems like all we wanted to do, we meaning me and my family and the, 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 the people on Twitter and most of the people listening to this, we just wanted to get out of the Trump years. And now we have Biden, which is great. And, and, and still we have this, this terrible uh, virus. Yeah. That half the country seems to just be ignoring Anyway, yeah, I mean, it, it blows me away when I hear about people going off on vacation and, you know, it's just, I'm like, what planet are you living on? You're traveling, you're getting on an airplane, I don't get it. So, yeah, I agree with you. It's very weird. It's like half the country's ignoring it and pretending it doesn't exist. And, you know, Fauci was on television this morning saying we might be wearing masks into 2022. Yeah, well... I believe that. I mean, it's it's I, it's going to be interesting to see how long people stop doing it. Just almost as a courtesy, I feel like in, mm-hmm. in certain places, you, know, you go to an airport, you're going to have a mask. You're just going to have a mask on, I think, for a while. Yeah. You know, right. Maybe not in your office where you work every day and stuff like that. It's going to be interesting to see how it affects certain things. Um, right. Maybe interesting is the wrong word. I, I, don't, <laughs> I, I don't know. I wish we didn't have to learn about about all this stuff. So. Well, I know that you have a you you have a have to go. So I want to thank you for joining me, Catherine Eban, Vanity Fair. the The articles are so good, and um, like I said, everybody should go back and read them, particularly the ones about about Kushner and and his role in the pandemic non response. Thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Great discussion. Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian voiceover. Thanks to Stephanie St. John for the narration. 
Thanks to Allison Gill, Jason Smith, Mackenzie Mazell, and everyone else involved with producing this podcast. Please subscribe to the Prevail website. Visit gregoliar.com. That's G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R.com. Until next time, we shall prevail. MSW.